Hey, Kent gave a really challenging message last week on our walk, the actions of our life matching our talk. Uh, I hope you were challenged like I was and went home and prayed just to see, Lord, what do you want me involved in? Uh, What does it look like to put feet to my faith? And that's something we'll be talking about and looking at options as a church for many months to come, but, but putting into practice the things we believe, so important. So I hope you're thinking and praying about that. We're going to start a new series this morning. Kent started a new one. I'm starting a new one also in the short book of Colossians. It's short, only four chapters, 95 verses, and yet it has so much to say, I was in this book recently in my own quiet times just a few months ago wondering what I should teach on next and, and this was uh, so encouraging, so exciting to me that uh, it's where we're going to go. This is 12 lessons, by the way. 12 lessons might sound like a lot in four chapters, but it means on some weeks we're going to be covering a number of different topics. We'll do that this morning. And so it may still seem a little scattered, but I trust that God will have something that He's saying to each one of us They won't be a neat, unified whole necessarily, a theme each Sunday, but there will be some great, great points we'll be covering. Uh, Like the letters to the Ephesians and the Philippians and Philemon, this is a prison epistle. This was written while Paul was incarcerated. We think this was written around 62 AD, about the time that the events of Acts chapter 8 were occurring. You remember Paul had been taken to Rome and in prison. We think that's about the same time we're looking at here. Uh, can you guys give us our uh, images up here? Uh, that Jesus showed up. The light of the world, two weeks late. There he is. So we could go back to our Easter Resurrection Sunday message, and there, there we'd have it. So anyway, funny, haha. How about uh, how about a couple of maps here? Okay, you guys. If I'm not in your way, can. This, is, uh, this would be modern-day Turkey, and you can see Colossae is right here, and Ephesus is here on the coast. This is about 100 miles inland from Ephesus, and this is on the Lycus River, the Lycus River Valley, and there are the also important cities of Heropolis and Laodicea, and that's the little town that Paul wrote when he wrote this prison epistle. Do you have that other map too, Brent? This sort of puts it in perspective on this lower one. You can see sort of in the Mediterranean, the larger world of the Mediterranean, where that sticks out there on the end of modern-day Turkey. So Colossae is the city Paul's writing to. Um, The Lycus River Valley had a major roadway along it. So these were trade cities. And back in the day, say the five, six hundred years before Jesus came, Uh, Colossae was a really important, thriving city. Very wealthy, very important. Its fortunes had changed a little bit over the centuries, and it was not the important city it had been in the past. So in this day in which Paul writes, Laodicea and Heropolis are actually bigger, more thriving cities than Colossae was. The whole area was subject to earthquakes, and there was a major earthquake sometime around the time Paul wrote this letter. Now this is a little unusual in that Paul in writing this letter is writing to a people group that he had never met. This church didn't start because Paul had preached the gospel there. He's never been there. 
Now, he knows some of the folks that are there, but he himself did not start the church and he'd never visited it. Uh, let me go over just very briefly a uh, sort of highlight hit list of some of the things we'll cover. In chapter 1, there is a section there, some people think is a hymn, an early Christian or church hymn, that perhaps more sublimely, succinctly, poetically describes who Jesus is than any other passage in the Bible. Colossians 1. Great memory passage to think about the deity of Christ. Colossians 1. Uh, Paul not only calls Christians to pray, prayer is a central theme in this letter. We'll look at prayer next week and chapters 1 and 4 especially, but six times Paul brings up this issue of prayer and he models that for us because he tells us what he prays for the Colossians when he thinks of them. It's also a very highly practical letter. Paul's going to talk about things like family relationships or our attitude at work, employer's attitude towards employees or employees towards employers. Uh, for me personally, the most mind-blowing and challenging and helpful and encouraging passage of Colossians is in chapter 1 and specifically it's at verse 27. Paul says there, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. This mystery is something God had not formerly declared. And that mystery is Christ is in you the hope of glory. Christ in you is your hope of future glory. And that's the theme of Colossians. Now, Paul had heard that the church was being troubled by a teaching. And if you guys read any commentaries, they'll all talk about the same thing. What is the Colossian heresy? There's a lot of, of guesses on some of the specifics, but essentially there were some teachings in Colossae that said something along this line. Um, there's a special height of spirituality that you can ascend to. But to get there it requires sort of a practice of asceticism and you've got to treat your body harshly and you've got to know the right angels that can act as your mediators. And, and if you do all these things right, it's possible for you to ascend to this higher spiritual plane that we, these teachers in Colossae, were talking about. And Paul's addressing this heresy when he writes this letter. And to all that special teaching that, that only a few make it to this higher level of knowledge and wisdom and fellowship with God, Paul says, well, no. Because if you have Christ, you've got it all. If I have Christ, I have everything I need. I've got all of God's wisdom. I've got all of God's knowledge. And I can't get any closer to God if Jesus is God and Christ is in me, then there's no getting closer to God. I'm there. So Paul is going to address this heresy that there's a special privilege, status, or class of Christianity that some of us can reach, but others can't. Paul says, no, Christ is in you. And if you have Christ, you have everything you need. Before we get into the text, I want to cover this base too. Paul writes this again from prison. He's incarcerated. He's in a place he wouldn't have chosen to go. And you and I are going to find ourselves oftentimes in places of life 
that we don't want to be and wouldn't have chosen for ourselves. And yet, the truth is, because Paul was in prison, not in spite of it, because Paul was in prison, he reached multiple times more people through these prison epistles than if he had been free and had been going around preaching to people face to face. Right? We've, got, we've actually got five letters Paul wrote from prison. Now those prisons survive to this day. He's locked up, can't get there, so I write this letter. So, Paul's ministry was multiplied because he was confined. I watched a video recently on Spurgeon in England, and this number is staggering, almost unbelievable, but in Spurgeon's lifetime, it's estimated he preached face-to-face to over 10 million people. Unbelievable. He was free, and he was preaching multiple times every week. 10 million, that's staggering. Paul has reached multiple times more people than Spurgeon did face-to-face because he was imprisoned and therefore was constrained to write these letters instead of going and talking or preaching face-to-face. His imprisonment was not a hindrance to what God wanted to do. Imprisonment became part of the mechanism by which God said, I'm going to speak through my Apostle Paul and I'm going to multiply it because while he's incarcerated... He's going to write these letters. It's interesting too, Philippians 1.12, Philippians another prison epistle, Paul said there, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the Gospel. All Paul cared about was getting out the message of Christ, the Gospel. And so he's imprisoned and he says to the Philippians, actually, more people are hearing about Christ, the, the message of the Gospel, because I'm in prison, than would have otherwise. In the Philippian letter, it's because other people have taken up the cause of the Gospel. And so more people are preaching it because Paul is in prison. So again, God's message there, God's work wasn't hindered because Paul was in prison. It was advanced because Paul was in prison. 2 Timothy 2, verse 9, this was Paul's last letter written to Timothy, his last words on earth. And he says this in chapter 2, verse 9, I'm suffering bound with chains as a criminal but the Word of God is not bound. Now, of course, we have 2 Timothy. That's God's Word from prison. But Paul says God's Word isn't bound because I'm locked up. It's still going out. Martin Luther was under house arrest, if you will, protective custody, um, basically to prevent the Roman Catholic Church from executing him. And it was while he was in house arrest that he translated the Bible into German. His restriction didn't hamper what God wanted to do with him or through him. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress from a British jail cell. All of this to say, you and I, like Paul, we will face times in life in which we say, I'm not where I wanted to be. I'm not doing what I wanted to do. That has nothing to do with God's ability to work in you and through you. And oftentimes it's those things we would not choose that are the very things God is going to use to advance His work in us and then through us as well. You might be married, and at times, I'm sure this wouldn't apply to anyone here, marriage might feel like your prison. Hopefully not. But if you're married, 
And you say, you know, my marriage places certain constraints on me. And if I was single again, maybe I could do more for the Lord. And, and I'd say to you, no. Your marriage is the place God will work in you and through you in the limitations that are part of you being married. But you know what, too? I know a lot of people who would love to be married. And there's this thought that sort of my life's on hold until I get married. And I'd say, no. You know, even if you say, I, I wanted to be married 10 years ago, I'd say to you right now, no. God's at work in you and through you right now with no limitations. Your being single does not limit God's work in you and through you right now. Or some of us in here, we might say, uh, I'm older and wish I were younger again. Wish I had a young person's energy or options in front of me. Or we might say, I'm younger and I wish I had an older person's maturity or finances or experience. And it feels like a place of confinement. If only I had this larger field from which to live or work. And I say again, no. Whatever place you find yourself in, whatever limitations you feel like you're living in or under, that's no different than Paul being in prison. And God's working in him. And God's working through him. You and I are highly limited in what we can do. And God isn't. And that's the point. So if we're willing, our place of confinement or restriction, that period in life in which it's not what we wanted, we wouldn't have signed up for it, that has absolutely no limitation on what God wants to do in us or through us. So whatever avenue God has opened to you right now, whatever door for ministry God has opened, if that's literally letter writing, or anything else, take those venues God has given you. Don't see that as a limitation. Because in God's hand, your limitation becomes the very mechanism by which He amplifies His work through you and in you. So prison didn't restrict Paul, and it doesn't need to restrict us either, whatever that might look like. So, going into the text, Colossians 1, verses 1 through 8. This is from the ESV. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. We're going to start just there in the very brief uh, introduction, verses 1 and 2. Paul says right off the bat, this is to a group he hasn't met, Paul the Apostle, Paul's not bragging and he's not trying to puff himself up. Paul is specifically chosen by Christ to be Christ's spokesman. 
And he's writing to a church in a group that doesn't know him personally. And so he wants them to know that what he says, he says with Christ's very own authority. And that's important because he's confronting and he's contradicting teachers that those folks know in Colossae. And Paul needs that church to know what you're being taught there, what he'll address later in chapters 2 and 3, is wrong. Those are false teachers and they're teaching heresy. I'm Christ's spokesman and you can count on what I say. I speak with Christ's authority by the will of God. Paul says, I'm God's apostle. Um, Paul starts every one of his letters by saying grace and peace to you. I've gone over that when I introduced 2 Corinthians and I'll let you check that out online if you want. This is uh, Paul's introductions in these letters. They always follow sort of a Greek model. And so you might minimize that and say, well, he's just being nice. But this is God's word, so Paul's not just being nice. This is what God wants us to know. And he introduces every one of his letters by saying grace to you and peace. And that's important. That's God's disposition to us, grace and peace. The other thing he does in the introduction is he addresses the letter to the saints in Colossae. To the saints in Colossae. Now, let's just pretend for a minute we're the Colossians. And Paul says, I'm writing to you saints in Topeka. You know, if you call someone a saint today, depending on your background and your heritage, you might think of someone with a halo around their head. Someone who lived a long time in a, in a deprived place. Uh, uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta. You might think of someone like that. But biblically, if you're a Christian, you're a saint. And that just means that you're holy. Because that's what the word means. You're holy one. Uh, that one of the introducting uh, songs this morning talked about uh, Christ uh, purchased my pardon and my sanctification. Well, our term sanctification, that means holy too. Saints, holy, sanctified, all come from the same Greek word. Hagios. So Paul says, I'm writing to you guys who are holy. You're saints. So when he says this to them, he is one stating a settled fact. If you're in Christ, you're holy. Because Christ is holy. And you and I have Christ's own righteousness. So to Christians, those who have exercised faith in Christ, he says, you're holy. It's a given. But also by telling them, reminding them, I'm writing to you as saints, it's a reminder, you've got an upward call. You are holy in Christ, and now we want to live holy lives because that's our new identity. So Paul makes sure he knows, I'm writing to you as God's chosen spokesman to a group of people that God says are holy, that uniquely belong to Him, God's holy ones, His saints. Now, Paul had no rose-colored glasses on. He knew the mess that was going on in Colossae, just like he knew in in the cities of Corinth or Rome or any other place, any other group of people he wrote to. It's not that he thought more highly of them than he should have. But he knew they were in Christ, and so he addresses them with grace and respect and patience because he knows who they belong to. They're in Christ. They're holy ones. And you know, for you and I, it's a challenge because even though we're holy and set apart in Christ, We still are very human. We still, as Christians, have sinful, depraved, fallen natures, and we follow those more often 
than we'd like or like to admit. And so it's a challenge interacting with each other, even as saints, isn't it? But you see, Paul takes the high road because he identifies their standing in Christ and he interacts with them as saints. And that's something we need to do with each other, which is to say consciously choose to speak and address each other graciously, knowing that we are fellow heirs of Christ, we're fellow saints, very the same holy ones, we're in God's family together, and that requires something of us towards each other. I don't know if you, like me, uh, when I was a kid, um, troublesome child in lots of ways, uh, got into more than my share of mischief, etc. And you know, when I would meet an adult, some adults would look at me in my undeveloped state and in my waywardness, and they would write me off, right? Not worth their time, you know, get out, you know, don't have time for you. You know, but a few others, they would look past my faults and all my failings, and they would interact with me graciously and thoughtfully and invest in me anyway. And I remember those people. And they were encouragement to me to be more than I was in the moment. And that's what we want to do for each other. 1 John 3, 2, John says, we're not yet what we will be. And as long as you and I draw breath on planet Earth in these fallen bodies, we're undeveloped. We're immature. We're not yet what we will be. But Paul is calling them saints and he's interacting with them graciously and respectfully. And that's what we're called to do with each other. Same thing. Because we're in Christ and because Christ's attitude towards us is grace and peace. You know, you're my holy ones. You belong to me. And we want to treat each other with that same thoughtfulness you see Paul doing here. He's the authority. He could be heavy-handed. He's not. He says grace and peace. And he says you're saints. You're God's holy ones. And we want to interact with each other thoughtfully just as Paul did. When he gets past the introduction here at verses 3 through 5, when he actually starts saying something specific to this group, notice the very first thing Paul says, we always thank God for you. First thing, Paul says, we are thankful to God for you. Paul says, when I think about you guys, when I hear from Epaphras what God's doing there, I am thankful what God is doing in the lives of others. You know, if we have a need individually, personally, and God fills that need, we're thankful, or I hope, we're thankful. We're thankful for what God does for us. You know, we have needs and God meets them, and, ah, oh, thank you, Lord. Paul sort of raises the bar on that for us, though. Because he's thankful for what God's doing in the lives of others. This isn't about Paul's comfort. He's in prison. He says, when I hear what God's doing in you and through you, I am so thankful. Thankfulness is just such a key, key attitude for us as Christians. Paul says he's thankful too for big things in their lives. You know, if I get a good meal... I'm a foodie. I'm thankful for that good meal. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul is thankful that they have faith 
in Jesus, that they have love for each other, and that those two are based on their hope of or in heaven. Paul's thankful for faith, hope, and love in the lives of these Colossian believers. G.K. Chesterton said this about thanksgiving, I would maintain that thanks are the highest form of thought and that gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. Thankfulness and gratitude. Robert Louis Stevenson said, the man who forgets to be thankful has fallen asleep in his life. The man who forgets to be thankful has fallen asleep unaware of all the ways God is blessing them, falling asleep in life. Thankfulness always directs our heart back to God. That's, that's probably the key reason why it's so helpful an attitude for you and I to have. In fact, think of this. If you're an atheist, who can you give thanks to? For the sunshine and for the trees and for spring weather and for good food. You have no one to give thanks to. And although we are inherently sinful and self-centered and it's all about me at the end of the day as carnal fallen creatures, there's still something in all of us that recognizes that someone has given me something and I feel good about that. But I've got no one to thank if I'm an agnostic or an atheist. What a frustrating place to be. But for us as Christians, whatever the blessing is in us, in our life or in someone else's life, Thankfulness is that thing that draws our hearts back to God. So all of those things God's doing in us or in someone else, that attitude of thanksgiving and gratitude to God, it draws us back to Him. This is another thing about being thankful. Uh, it humbles us. Uh, proud people are not thankful people. Proud people cannot be thankful people. If I'm a proud person and life is all about me, then when I get something good, that's just my due. If you serve me, that's just what you should do for me. If I'm proud and it's all about me, I cannot be thankful. Thankfulness and humility go side by side, arm in arm. So an attitude of thanksgiving helps keep me humble. It keeps an appropriate attitude in my mind about who I am and what my limitations are and God's goodness in my life and in the lives of others. Attitude and humility go hand in hand, that thankfulness. And last, it frees me from self-centeredness. Paul is in prison, but he's filled with thanksgiving for what God's doing in their lives. See, prison doesn't restrict not only Paul's ministry, but it doesn't restrict his ability to be thankful because he knows the good things God is doing in the lives of these folks in Colossae. And for that, he is thankful, even in prison. Now note, too, to the things he's thankful for. He says in verse 4, we're thankful for your faith in Christ. We're thankful for the love you have for all the saints. And we're thankful because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. This is that holy trinity you see Paul referring to multiple times throughout the New Testament epistles. But Faith, in order here, faith, love, and hope. Paul's thankful for faith. You guys know a faith is the difference, literally, between heaven and hell. 
if I hear that someone is saved, I know that they have faith in Christ. Faith is the difference between heaven and hell. When Paul hears that they have believed, that they have faith in Christ, he's thankful they're saved. They're going to heaven. Their eternal outcome has changed. There's nothing that we should be more concerned about on earth than people coming to Christ, having their sins forgiven, and knowing that they have a glorious future, no matter what happens in this life, to come. Friends, faith is the difference between heaven and hell for those folks hearing the message of the gospel. Paul's thankful they have faith. They're saved. Their sins are forgiven. They belong to Christ. They're going to heaven and they have the fullness of the Spirit here and now. And for you and I as Christians, faith should underwrite everything we do. It's, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And our thoughts and our actions and our words should all be underwritten by faith. In Galatians, Paul talks about faith and love. He connects those two. But faith should be a part of everything we do. Paul gives thanks that they have faith, that they've been saved, and that they're now leading a life characterized by faith, by trust in God Himself and in God's Word. He's also thankful for the love they have for each other. You know, sometimes if you visit a church, what is it that you walk away thinking afterward? Now, if there's a great teaching or if the worship sort of is soaring and you feel drawn up, those are great things. But if no one said hi to you, no one introduced themselves to you, if no one came up and introduced themselves and just showed a little Christ-like love or care, how would that leave you feeling when you left? Great teaching, great worship, but... Nobody cared about me. No one cared that I was there. Paul says he's thankful because they love each other. You know, we've had families that have had deaths just recently and sicknesses. And I can tell you, talking to one person, they said it was the witness of multiple Christians visiting their family and showering them with meals and just rest, giving them a break, that spoke the loudest to their family members who were not Christians. It was the love that the body of Christ displayed for its own that spoke the loudest to people who had already heard the Gospel, but at this point weren't buying it. It was the love displayed by one member of the body of Christ to another that they came away, those who didn't know, yet know Christ, saying, wow, that was great. It affirmed the gospel. The, the message of the gospel is all important, but we affirm and we adorn the gospel by what we do. And Paul said, you guys love each other. You get it. And for that, I'm thankful. And he also said that he was thankful that they had hope. And the arrangement here is interesting. Normally we think of faith sort of as the foundation of God's work, but in this arrangement... Paul says your faith and your love are on the foundation of hope. Biblically, hope is the certainty of something that simply has not yet occurred. So Paul says your faith and your love are actually built on the foundation of the hope you have laid up for you in heaven. You know, if you and I go through hard, challenging, difficult trials in life, and we will, 
of one form or another, if you tell me, Mike, there's this great thing at the end of the day, I can get through the day. If you tell me, Mike, I've, you've got a horrendous work week lined up, but you've got vacation coming on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I can get through the week. And not just get through, I can excel because I'm looking at the weekend that's to come. Well, Paul says that here. He says your faith and love are based on your hope reservedly save you in heaven. They bought into the fact that Jesus has not only saved you, but you're, you're as good as in heaven with Him now. That's a, a hope that will not be disappointed. And so whatever goes on in your life now, you can get through it. You know, guys, we live cushy, comfy lives here in the United States in our day and age. And I'm not minimizing, by the way, any troubles any of us go through. Just sort of materially, wealth, comforts, medicines, you, you name it. We sort of have it as good as you could get. This is the exception historically. And this is the exception for many, many Christians around the globe today. And we may not always feel the need of this, but guys, when the bottom falls out, and life isn't good, and it's not comfortable, and it's trying, what gets you through? What preserves your faith? Paul says for these guys, their hope of their future with Christ eternally face to face was the foundation for their faith and love. Hope will get us through. Paul says, I'm thankful. When I heard about God's work in you, I'm thankful because you have faith and you have love and you have a hope. And your life is characterized by the fruit of hope. And I'm thankful. I'm going to wind down here the last couple of points a little bit more quickly. Verses 5 through 7. <clears throat> excuse me. Paul talks about the gospel and the fruit of the gospel. The gospel and the fruit of the gospel. Let me point out, Paul has a, a, a literary construction here. If you look, he says, the word of truth, the gospel. Then referring to that word of truth, the gospel, he says, indeed in the whole world it, the gospel, is bearing fruit and increasing. And then he says, it, the gospel, also does among you. It bears fruit and increases. And then he ends with, the grace of God in truth. So Paul's saying a couple things here. The word of truth and the truth of the gospel is the same thing as the grace of God in truth. Verse 6. So Paul wants them to have no mistake. The gospel is the truth. The gospel is truth with a capital T. And the gospel produces fruit. Two things, inseparable. The gospel is the truth, and the gospel produces fruit. That's where he ends here. So to the gospel is truth. When I say this, I don't mean just narrowly. When we say the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection, you know, you get into 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul sort of succinctly says the gospel. You know, Jesus came in the flesh, and He died on the cross, and He rose from the dead, and that's the the message that saves. That's true, but the Gospel is certainly more than that. Because when Paul talks to them about 
the work of God in their lives, that's the message of the gospel as well. It's not just that Christ saves you. It's that, as the song said earlier, He sanctifies you. He saves you in a moment of time, but then He's at work in you. And that's what He'll talk to our friends in Colossae about. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The transforming work and power of Christ at work in you is part of the gospel. That's part of the fruit of the gospel. So Paul says the gospel, the message about Jesus, who he was, what he did, what he intends to do for those who will simply believe, that's the gospel. And Paul says it's true, it's true, it's true. Guys, in our day, the gospel, unbelief is rife through the land. You know, the statistics say we're all Christians, but very few of us actually believe the gospel. There's absolutely nothing wrong with the gospel. With the message about Jesus Christ. It's the truth. And we live in a culture, let me say this bluntly, that wants to spiritually rape us and take our faith. The TV shows, the music, the ads, the magazines. Guys, you know, John the Apostle in his letter says, love not the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of God is not in him. Do you know why? Because the world hates God. The world is opposed to God and everything He does and loves. And we're in a setting in which people, some, some very consciously and others less so, are part of a system that wants to take from you your faith that wants to reduce the impact or the volume of the Gospel. And Paul says the Gospel, the message about Christ, it's true, it's true, it's true, it's true. We've got to be so careful. This is always a work in progress, the world, against God's work in our life. You know, especially too, if you're a student, um, it always bears examining what you hear in school. There's a bunch of homeschoolers in here, isn't there? (laughs) But I'll say the same thing anyway. Whatever educational venue you find yourself in as you grow up from young to old, we always want to use the Scriptures, God's Word, as the ultimate standard about what someone's telling me, right? God's Word is the standard. And many, many institutions of education want to take Christians' faith from them. Many teachers want their goal, you don't have to look far or hard for this, by the way. They'll tell you the first day of class they intend to verbally assault and insult you if you're a Christian. We live in a culture that wants to take the most important thing from us anyone can have, which is faith in Christ, confidence in the Gospel. And so we have to be fully aware of that. And we have to say that's not going to happen. The gospel is the truth. And you can stand on that. And it will bear all examination. But be aware, just like the early Christians in the Roman era, we live in a culture, a time and a place in which people around you want to take the message of the gospel and the hope you have because of it. Paul says the gospel is God's grace in truth. The gospel is the truth. To the new atheists of our day, the philosophers and scientists, 
Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, the message of Jesus is going to outlast all of their lives and all of their philosophies and all of their books. The Gospel is true in Paul's day. It's true in ours. Don't back down on that. And Paul says the Gospel bears fruit. It bears fruit and it's increasing. Part of that is people just coming to Christ and being saved. And the other part of that is the transforming work of God in our lives because Christ is in us. Now, related to evangelism... Um, sometimes we feel like the gospel isn't working because I shared the gospel with someone and they didn't believe. Or I shared the gospel with two people and they didn't believe. And I start thinking maybe something's wrong with the gospel or something's wrong with my delivery. There's something wrong with the message. And I just say a couple things. One is this. Back in Isaiah's day, Isaiah was God's prophet. Kind of like Paul, right? But you know, God gave Isaiah a message and he said, Isaiah, this is the deal. Isaiah 6, how would you like to be Isaiah? Okay, Isaiah, you're my man, so I want you to go to my, my covenant people Israel. And hearing, they won't hear you. And seeing, they won't perceive. Wow, thanks, Lord. That's my ministry to your covenant people. You know, in fact, later in Isaiah, Isaiah says a truth is like a person who can't walk down the street in Israel. Truth has fallen down in the street. I've fallen and I can't get up. Well, that was truth in Isaiah's day. But you know what God said in Isaiah 55, 11? My word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God says in Isaiah's day, nope, they're not going to hear or see. That's okay. Guess what? My word is still going to accomplish my will. If you share the gospel with 10 people and 10 people refuse it, God, there, guys, there's nothing wrong with God's Word. It's still going to work. It will work. Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the message of the gospel, the message about Christ, is the power of God for salvation to all who will believe. I think for a lot of us, what we really have a problem with is we're ashamed of the gospel. We're ashamed to publicly name Christ or Jesus instead of God or the Lord. That it really comes down to we're ashamed to proclaim the message that saved our soul and to share that hope with someone else. Are we ashamed of the Gospel? Paul says, I'm not. It's what God uses to bring others to Christ. So, related to evangelism, we tend to say, I'm going to share the gospel with this person. And I'm praying for that person's salvation. And I'm all for that. You're going to sow the same seed ten times in the same person and pray God makes it grow. I'm okay with that. I'm good with that. Because we have people we know, we love them, and that's what we want for them. I, I'm good to go with that. But that's not broadly what you'll see is the biblical model of evangelism. The biblical model is we scatter as much seed as, as broad and wide as we can. That's the model. We want to get the word out as often to as many people as possible. That's how we want to plant the seeds of the gospel. So we're thinking, back to our Sunday school lesson of Luke chapter 8. Instead of saying, I'm going to plant this one seed right here, and then I'm going to sit and I'm going to wait and see, see what happens. 
or I'm going to plant 10 seeds in this one person. I'm going to sit and pray and see what happens. That's, that's not the biblical norm. The biblical norm is we're a farmer. We've got a bag full of seed. You know what? That seed does us no good in the bag. We want to get it out on the ground. And you know what? That farmer in Luke 8, he's kind of odd because he doesn't, he doesn't discriminate over what kind of ground he throws that seed. See, he, he sees it all. He's just walking along throwing it all out. So some looks rocky, some looks thorny, some looks good, some looks shallow. See, but he doesn't take any of that into account. He's got the seed, he scatters it, broad and wide as he can. That's what we're supposed to do. If I look at you and I say, look at that person, they'll never become a Christian. They're thorny ground. They're, they're rocky ground. They're shallow ground. Surely, I have no idea. I have no idea. In fact, sometimes, isn't it true that the people that seem furthest from Christ are the ones that get saved? We have no way of knowing. We have no way of knowing. They're a good person. Surely they'll believe the gospel. Two things. No, they're not good in God's eyes. And maybe, maybe not. You, you don't know. We don't know. So our goal is to be like the farmer in Luke 8. It's to scatter the gospel, the message of Christ, as broadly, as often as we can. And you know what? With confidence we know this. It will accomplish God's purpose. And it's the power of God for salvation. And guess what? Some of those folks you share with, they're going to be the good soil that the Holy Spirit has prepared. And when that seed of truth about Jesus hits their heart, they're going to receive it. And it's going to sprout. And it's going to grow in them. But we don't know who those folks are. So our job with Paul is to get the word out. And because I love Epaphras because of this. You know, he's mentioned a few times. Epaphras had heard the gospel. Maybe he heard it from Paul because he's returned to Paul when Paul's in prison here. Maybe he heard it in Paul's days in Ephesus. You know, a couple years there around Acts chapter 19. What did he do? He walked home to the Lycus Valley. And what did he do? He took that same message he'd heard and he scattered it. And guys, there were churches in Laodicea, Heropolis, and Colossae. Apparently because Epaphras got serious about throwing it out there on the ground. That's the model we want. There's nothing wrong with the Gospel. It hasn't changed. There's nothing wrong with the message of truth of God's grace. We've got to change our attitude. And guys, if we're embarrassed, just acknowledge that to ourselves and to God and each other and start working on ways to talk to others about Christ anyway. Just do it. That's something we've got to work at. And no, keep at it. Kathy and I have worked at sharing the Gospel for many years. And I'll tell you, the people we've actually seen come to Christ through that, not very many. But you know, I don't conclude I'm no good at it. And it doesn't work. No. We want to be like Paul and Epaphras. We're confident in God's Word. The Gospel is truth. It was then, it is now. It has inherent in itself life. And so I want to scatter it as broadly as I can. And like Paul, I want to be thankful for what God's doing in the lives of others. And I want to get the Word of the truth, the Gospel of God's grace, out as broadly as I can. It's going to be a great trip through the Lycus Valley and through the letter to the Colossians. So I hope you're half as excited as I am. Father, 
Thanks for Your Word of truth. Thanks that the Gospel still saves. Lord, that's Your work. It's Your message. God, would You give us confidence? Lord, where we are cowards spiritually, would You help us confront that? Where we're ashamed of You or Your words or the Gospel, would You help us confront that? Would You give us, Lord, Paul's confidence in the message of the Gospel? The grace, Your work through that message to save us and to transform us? God, would You make us lions of faith? Would You help us like Epaphras to take the message, the Gospel of God's grace that is saved and informed and is transforming us? And Lord, would You help us to scatter that as broadly and as widely as possible in Your grace, to Your name, for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.